Welcome to the 34 Circe Salon. Welcome to Make Matriarchy Great Again. again. And welcome everyone to the 34 Circe Salon. This is the Make Matriarchy Great Again podcast, and we're really going to make matriarchy great today because we have a very special guest. Dawn, <laughs> would you like to tell us about that? Absolutely. I am Don Sam Alden, as you probably know by now, and we are absolutely thrilled uh, to have Dr. Heide Gertner Abendroth on the podcast this morning. Um, well, morning for us, evening for her, because she is coming to us from um, her home in Germany. Uh, Dr. Goethe Abendroth is a mother, a grandmother, and the founding mother of modern matriarchal studies. Uh, she earned her PhD at the University of Munich, where she lectured for 10 years. In 1986, she founded the International Academia Hagia and since then has been its director. She has also guided three world congresses on matriarchal studies. In 2012, she received the Association of the Study of Women in Mythology's Saga Award for contributions to women's history and culture. Dr. Gertna Abendroth has published on the philosophy of science and extensively on matriarchal society and culture. Her many publications include The Goddess and Her Heroes, Matriarchal Religion in Mythology, Fairy Tales, and Poetry, The Dancing Goddess, Principles of a Matriarchal Aesthetic, and Matriarchal Societies, Studies on Indigenous Cultures Around the Globe. Her latest book has just been published in English, Matriarchal Societies of the Past and the Rise of Patriarchy. Uh, Dr. Gertner Abendroth has twice been nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. Welcome, welcome, Dr. Gertner Abendroth. So thrilled to have you here today. Thank you so much, Dawn. I'm really honored to be on your podcast, and I, I enjoy to have this conversation with you. <laughs> wonderful, you. wonderful. So, we um, talked a little bit before the podcast, and um, you have uh, many books, many articles, many um, appearances on podcasts, a lot. Uh, you've been a couple of times on um, Genevieve Vaughn's um, uh, Gift Economy podcasts, and they are wonderful, and I urge anyone to check them out. Um, but uh, we sort of wanted today to talk about you, the person, and not just your wonderful work, but how you came to this wonderful work that you do and how you came to be the mother of modern matriarchal studies. Um, so very, very nice idea, Dawn, because <laughs> this kind of interview is quite rare. Yeah. And yeah. Quite <laughs> Wonderful. I'm talking about my work and very rarely about my person. <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah. Well, we wanted to get to know the person behind the work. So 
Um, let's begin at the beginning. Uh, you were born in Germany, and uh, when you were 12, you moved from East Germany to West Germany in 1953. Uh, you know, as Americans, we have very little conception of what that time in history was like, but it must have been incredibly uh, profound for you and and changed sort of your the course of your life at that point. Can you tell us a little bit about how that maybe shaped your view of the world? Yes, you see, in East Germany at that time, we had this communist dictatorship, and um, many people who were not who were non-conformists were oppressed, and this was also the case with my parents who did not uh, adopt this communist ideology. They were dissident. So uh, this is what they told later to me. I was a little girl and we, my parents and the family left East Germany when I was just 12. But they told me that um, they were not allowed to practice their profession because they were dissident. And uh, we children, I have an older brother and a younger sister. We three children were not allowed to go to an um, to have higher education at an uh, at a secondary school or college. Also, we were not allowed. And oh. this was in the, in the end. This you see, this is a kind of um, oppression of people who did not were not conform to this uh, ideology of communism at that time in East Germany. Yeah. And this was too much for my parents. So when when we were 12, my brother was 14, my younger daughter just 10, they decided to leave East Germany to go to West Germany so that they could practice their profession again, both were teachers and that the children could have higher education. And I think this was really decisive for my yes. <laughs> for my way to continue my life. I didn't get it when I was so young, but later I understand deeply what my parents did. They did really a great thing. Yes. But when, when we left East Germany, we left the house, we left all we had. And in West Germany, we were at the beginning rather poor. But my parents opened the door that I could go to a, to a secondary school and later to a university. This was important for me. Yes, my worldview. Hmm. Yeah, my worldview. Yeah. You see, when I was at school in East Germany, um, the school system was very good. The teachers were young; they were committed, and of course, I, I, uh, as a child, I absorbed some of the Marxist ideology, but not the ideology I learned from very early on that matters of society are important. It opened my view to uh, societal patterns and so on. And I think this is this was a gift for me. This was important. Absolutely. As a child, I didn't get much of this ideology. I didn't understand it. But this way to look at um, society as an important surrounding of each other individual, I think this was a very important trigger for me later to to be able to look at matriarchal societies as a whole so this is what i i got there was there was there any difference between uh 
in East Germany and West Germany, the treatment of, of male and female students? Did you notice any difference in mm -hmm. their approach to female students, perhaps? In, uh, in East Germany, um, both uh, sexes were treated very as equals. And the um, possibilities for women were much better than in West Germany. When we came to West Germany, I had some kind of cultural shock when I went to school there. For we, I found classes filled with 50 or 60 uh, pupils, male and only female, it was separate. And uh, we, when you were in the, low, in the uh, row in the back uh, of the classroom, you couldn't nearly see the teacher, nearly hear her or him. And uh, the teachers were old, they were out, outworn in some way, and they really practiced bodily punishment. This oh, was a wow. Yes, it was a shock for me because I was accustomed to a very good and very effective and young school system in East Germany. Mm. And I experienced very soon that um, this difference between women and men or boys and girls, at that time, uh, higher education was separate for, for boys and for girls. And... Um, the girls were treated as if they were not so important. I yeah. felt this, I saw this. And this also, I found it disgusting because I was not used to this. So yeah. I had only the possibility of two ways of experiences, the Eastern part, which was oppressive, but I had some good things which I could took with me, take with me. And West, uh, West Germany, of course, we had more freedom to buy and to travel where we want. My parents could practice their profession, but it was very important for me to, to have higher education and go to the uni university. But the beginning was hard because the school system for the um, elementary school system was rather bad at that time. Today it's better, but yes. at that time it was bad. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, post-war Germany, I would imagine. My my mother actually grew up in Germany, and um, so she she told us a little bit about what, what Germany was like right after World War II. And um, but she wouldn't speak much of it. We 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 she she took most of her stories to the grave because yeah. uh, she did she simply did not want to go back to that time, even in just her mind. See, in West Germany, post-war Germany, there were um, there were two, two little um, houses and room for people to live and and school system. We were crowded in this classes. This was a situation after post-war, and I was really thrown into this with 12 years. In East Germany, it was different, something better, but the, the broader picture was very difficult to say it at least. Yeah. Yeah, so they it were. was luck for me that my parent parents uh, took made this uh, decision to to leave to flee. Yeah, yeah, fascinating. So skipping forward a little bit, uh, you went to university and you received your PhD in the philosophy of science. Do I have that correct? Yes. Wonderful. From the University of Munich, München, in 1973. And uh, 
you became active in second wave feminism. So sort of tackling some of these problems that you found with gender discrimination um, in West Germany. So that sort of led led you in in from an outside view, you might see that this was a transition from a more ph philosophical study to sort of a more out in the world um, uh, turn of events. Do you did you see this as a natural progression or was this sort of some uh, a turning over a new direction for you? You see, when I was uh, at university as student and then gaining my PhD and later, Teaching, uh, I always experienced experienced that uh, um, personally, there was I was often questioned why why as a woman I want to study philosophy and later I was not supported by my um, teachers mm. and this made me more and more angry and even a long time during my teaching there always young male um, assistants were were promoted and it was never a place for me there. This made me really angry. At the same time, I I was not political at the immediately. I had little children and had my job at university. This was full time, a double full time job. Yeah, and uh, but I was so angry that I thought I. And when I listened to all these philosophical systems of of history or philosophy, I. It was so boring. But I asked myself, what has this to do with me as a woman? And as a young mother, I had a great, I had a great work with three little children, and I found it was an important work, but nothing of this was to be to heard uh, at, at this all these philosophical systems, one after the other, and so on and so on. This was the reason why I studied philosophy of science, because I was so curious that I thought I wanted to know what are their intellectual tools with which they construct a system after system. I want to know what what they are doing. So in philosophy of science, you learn how to argue and to recognize false argumentation. You learn how to construct theories which are based on, on uh, empirical ground and so on. This is a very critical instrument, and I wanted to have this critical instrument to criticize all this philosophy and science, which omitted women and and mothers anyway. And yes, they, they are living in a world which was not my world. So it was yes. rather difficult. And when second wave feminism began, it began at first on the streets, on the ground. I was not with them on the ground. But very soon it started at university with my younger colleagues, also assistant professors, which very early recognized that they have no much chance, no much opportunity to develop their profession. Mm. We were all very furious. And then I joined them. I joined this part, the academic part of second wave feminism. And I was with my colleagues when they founded um, women's sociology, and women's psychology and criticized all these theoretical things which which of male provenience before. And I was with them with my first ideas about matriarchy, criticizing patriarchy in a very deep way. So they were listening to me. Nobody else before listened to me. I was lonely and I was alone. 
when I discovered the topic matriarchy and it intrigued me, I could not get rid of it because I was so bored with this philosophical stuff. But my colleagues, and when we started to become political, they were the first to listen to it. And when we made um, um, sit-ins and th things like that, presenting the, the beginning of women's studies, the, the uh, rooms were full, full of students, most female students, enthusiastically, and we were also enthusiastic. It was a fantastic, fantastic time. Wonderful. So it was my, the political beginning. It, it came out of my being so curious how I was treated as an intellectual woman studying philosophy. Really, when I started at the beginning with my studies and I um, asked my professor and uh, went to his um, to his open hour to present. Office my... hours, yeah, yeah. Thank you so much, office hours. He really asked me, why do you want to study philosophy? And I didn't understand this question. Right. It was really sexist. The atmosphere was sexist in this in, in this institute where, where I was was um, learning philosophy science, I was the only woman. And yeah. it was a sexist atmosphere. But this also fueled my fury. And so <laughs> the outcome was that I joined from the very beginning the, um, the second wave feminism. Fantastic. May I ask you... Um... Did you notice any differences with uh, the development of second wave feminism in Germany versus what you may have heard about from the United States or other parts of Europe? Was there a particular flavor to it that developed in Germany or was it very similar to what had been developing throughout the West, let's say? I think uh, second wave feminism was initiated in in the US, and and this were, what happened there were models for us in Germany and in Europe. Mm. Um, it's difficult for me to say what was the difference. I think in I was in the academic sphere of the second wave feminism, and there are very good criticisms of. So of theories in sociology, psychology, and myself in history and in uh, and so on was done. And I think this theoretical uh, outcome might have been uh, more European or more German, because we are well trained in uh, understanding theories and criticizing theories. This theoretical thinking is is. Uh, deeply rooted in Germany, sometimes not to the best, but sometimes <laughs> there might have been a difference. There you go. You mentioned um, that once you found out about matriarchy, you couldn't let go of it, that it really grabbed hold of you. Do you remember how that first came into your consciousness? Yes, I remember very well. This was during my, when I was a student, I um, I was always interested in mythology and so on because I had the feeling there's more cultural background behind this. And so I found the book of Robert Gray's Greek mythology and he doesn't not only write about Greek mythology, not at all. Right. Yeah, this is a really famous book. I know it was also famous in English in the US 
And he openly speaks about an earlier cultural epoch before this patriarchalization of the myths. And he called it openly matriarchy. I was fascinated. And I continued to read his books. And I, in the institute, I was, when I was a student, I was not bound to a special institute. Then I went to different libraries of the different disciplines in ethnology and and history and archaeology. I was looking for something like that. I was free to do this. I was at the university and I found a lot, but not under the label matriarchy. There exists a lot of information, but no one of these intelligent men who wrote their books would not label it like that. And I was collecting it, collecting and collecting. I see there is a lot here, but all undercover all silence in some way. So when I was a student, I really did did uh, two studies. My official study was, was philosophy and science and my inofficial study <laughs> I didn't know what would be the outcome of this. Right. But I was intrigued by it because the first time I had the feeling this has to do with me as a woman, as a woman who is was mother what many other women's women are too so so i couldn't get rid of it i found some identity and uh, and wanted to go on of course as an academic to create to open this field by a theoretical instrument and to show how vast this field is and in this way my study of philosophy of science was very fruitful to me right yes yes it gave you the tools yeah, yes, I understood when I read these books to read between the lines what they really meant and what they really were hiding, all these scholars. And I knew how to to build a theoretical framework which is which is filled with empirical knowledge. And I did it from the very beginning. I did not know what, what would be would I did not know what would be the consequence. Right, right. But one time I had to to draw the consequence out of it. Yes, which sort of leads us to the next uh, the next part of your life when you parted from the University of Munich um, mm. in 1986 and founded the International Academy for Modern Matriarchal Studies and Matriarchal Spirituality, Hagia, which you are still uh, the mother of today. Uh, how did all that come about? How did the idea of founding your own academy come about? And what were those early years like? Yes, I noticed that uh, one one time I was at the crossroad. Would I continue with Fuller's philosophy of science? I had the feeling I had learned enough from their intellectual tools and all the rest how to make computer programs, how to, to uh, make linguistic translations per computer. This was not interesting to me. Mm. I had the instrument I needed for what was interesting for me, matriarchy. And, uh, and then I felt that they tried to hinder me to make a career as a female, as a woman philosopher. Mm -hmm. So... The decision was difficult for me, but I did it. I decided to, to leave philosophy because I had, had learned what I wanted to learn mm -hmm. and to continue with matriarchy. Even if to continue with matriarchy, 
uh, still was alone with this was a high risk. Mm, yes. But when you hear from the professors, we don't want to promote you. You you, you have a husband, you have a family. So you, you don't have a need to get a job as a philosopher. All these sexist, sexist sayings, these sexist then I had the feeling they don't want me. And continue with philosophy of science might become kind of um, la pour la. Hmm? Do you understand? La pour la, I don't know. The, 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 like, um, yeah, like if you are um, teaching and learning in an, in an, um, in a closed, in a closed. Oh, insulated or insular. Yeah, yeah insulated. Yeah, and it's no, and I think it. I thought at that time it has no social relevance. Yes, yeah. I experienced how many women were interested in this topic matriarchy from our uh, political activism as uh, second wave feminism's founders. Yes. I had the feeling that this has a high social relevance, yes. and so I decided to do this. But imagine the situation: I had three children not grown up i had no job <laughs> which yeah i thought no i have to leave all this because this is all this patriarchal surrounding university this is extreme hierarchy and yeah. my i also left my marriage which was not satisfying for me mm -hmm. i took my three children and left munich and moved to a Bavarian countryside where, where we, we bought a big old Bavarian farmhouse. Oh, how wonderful. And my idea was I have to find to found anything, something for women's that women have space. That women will have space to learn, not influenced by any other um, sub suppressive institution and so on. And it was like jumping from one uh, side over the river to the other one, <laughs> not knowing what will happen. Right. But from the very beginning, it was in 1986, from the very beginning, as soon as I opened up this academy, I opened this academy, the women came. They came and, and, uh, and were open to support this teaching of course it was paying for this teaching not too much but so what was possible for them right and since then now we are it's now i have to count it's now 30 uh no that's uh, how many since, years since 86 it's now 38 now, years yeah yes since 38 years yeah Women never stopped to come and to come and to come. And I saw it was needed what I was doing. Yes. Only by teaching and free um, sponsorship, this academy survived. Yes. I did not accept any uh, money from the state or from the communal um, officials because later they destroyed all what they had given before. And and destroyed parts of second wave feminism. I wanted to be completely independent. And this was the right way for matriarchy. It's not, not a topic which was wanted by, right. by institutions. But the women always came. And so I can continue. Of course, it was some up and down and up and down. 
but we continued we continued so for such a long time and we had always donations and we had always interested women who wanted that this topic goes out into the world yes and so i'm very proud of my students wonderful <laughs> wonderful yeah the in the 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 need was there not from above but from below the yeah. support of people yeah who wanted to learn that's wonderful yeah but i wanted to, ahead, wanted to ask just to um to go back a little bit um so we're now at the point where you you're starting this matriarchal studies mm -hmm. construct but i'm interested again and in, you'd mentioned robert graves in mm -hmm. maybe some particular things that triggered you or it motivated you uh to look at matri look at history from a matriarchal standpoint was there a particular uh culture that you encountered a particular mythology was there any one or or a few different things that you thought ah there's something more here that people aren't seeing with respect to a matriarchal construct Uh, could you please see a condensed question that I get it can get sure, it of course. <laughs> is it, sorry there was there one was there a particular uh, example of something in history or mythology that you thought people didn't see the matriarchal aspect yeah. of yes the uh, work of Robert Graves inspired me that mythology is not only about fanciful stories but that means mythology has um, uh, a core of truth of societal truth this i found very interesting and he showed when when he showed how this older form of myths were goddess centered and mother centered and so on and he showed in his book how this was changed during patriarchal um, the epoch bit by bit and this was very interesting for me, for it opened, by mythology, he opened up in uh, historical view, in historical um, broad view. And this, I want, to, I want to follow this. And so my first book, The Goddess and Her Heroes, was inspired by him, but I broadened the view because I brought in material from India, Persia, Egypt, uh, Germanic and Celtic, which was not all, all in his book. He only um, mentioned Greek and Mediterranean area. I broadened it and systematized it a little bit more. And this helped me a lot. And then when I showed that these this, uh, same structures of goddess and the sacred king, uh, goddess and her consort, the sacred king, continued, beyond mythology, it continued very long in patriarchal times. At first in, in fairy tales, which are hidden myths. These are not fairy tales, they are hidden myths, made anonymously. And I always found, also found it in medieval literature. I was also studying not only philosophy or science, but also Germanic literature, medieval especially. Then I saw it, how in this um, uh, Romances, a lot of so-called fairy tale motives were included, but this were mythological material included there, which also showed 
the matriarchal virtue continuing even in this epoch in a hidden way. It has a long impact in this way, and this was really intriguing me, for it was not only about stories, it was about history, what I could learn. Oh, her, her story, sorry. Yes, that it's almost a hidden cultural memory that is continued through the mythology and the fairy tales. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, do you want to draw a shade? It looks like you're getting some sun in your face. Do you, is that bothering you or? No, it's not bothering me. Okay, great. We have no video, so it's not. We, we have no video, but I was just thinking if you want to get up and close something, please feel free. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, so. going down here, so I. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, sunset it's coming up over here. So <laughs> yeah, there are two different continents. We yeah, are absolutely, living. absolutely. Um, so uh, how did you become involved with the Institute of Archaeomythology? Let me say something about continuation of my work. Only some statements. Absolutely, yeah. Mythology intrigued me at first because there I could. Uh, study the worldview of matriarch societies. But soon I felt I want to know more about their societal patterns, their political patterns, and their economic patterns, which you cannot see. You have only hints, but you cannot see it in full in mythology. So I broadened my theory and wanted to study all the other parts of a society, as economy, social patterns, and political, and so on. And this... Um, was a big task, but I had all already developed the theoretical framework, which included all this, and now I had to do the work to find it and to fill this framework. <laughs> so I continued, and um, I continued to look and to search and to wrote some books in German, which later have been translated and so on. Yeah, how did I come to the Institute of Archaeomythology? This is a really a nice story. Well, at a conference in, oh, in, in Istanbul, I think, I met Joan Marla. And she was such a kind person. She, we, we had, we were, I met her and other married women from America, for example, Lucia Birnbaum and John Cishon and Mara Lynn Keller. They were all at this conference in Istanbul and later in Greece. And it was especially, I think it was, I do not remember the year, I'm sorry. It was in the nine, 90s of last century. Right. And Joan had the idea that she wanted to found the Institute of Archaeomythology based on the work of Maria Gimbutas, which is very important for, yes. for all of us. And uh, I was with, with this group, and so I became... Um, by good luck, I became a founding member with <laughs> of the Institute of Archaeology, and Joan invited me also to do um, this to give lectures about my work. And she really was at that time she is she is my first American supportive friend, and ever has been since then. Oh invited her into the Academy Hagia, where she several times lectured about Maria Gimbutas. And so she really is my first American friend, and I'm really proud uh, to have, I feel honored to have this friendship, and of course to be connected with the Institute of Archaeology. 
Wonderful. Wow. You were in the right place at the right time. Yeah. yeah. So I met Joan and Joan met me and we had, Joan was immediately seeing that my studies in, in, in matriarchy uh, might complement the work of Maria Gimboda, especially at the time I did it in the field of anthropology with his indigenous societies. But this complemented the historical and archaeological work which Maria Gimbuta had done. Right. So yes. It was two sides of the coin. Wonderful. Wonderful. Yeah. Um, so speaking of that, the indigenous societies, um, as you continued in your research, there was an increasing focus on indigenous peoples and their connections to matriarchal studies. Um, can you speak a bit about how this came about? <laughs> yes, that's a good question. Don, I must make a compliment to you. You are one of the few American women who can pronounce my name correctly. <laughs> <laughs> Your mother was German. Did I get it right? Yes, my mother was German. I Absolutely. Long and complicated, and not many American women and men can pronounce it correct, but you did it so wonderfully. <laughs> well, thank you. I have my mother to thank. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, how, how did this start? Um, would you please repeat your question? Absolutely, absolutely. So, <laughs> no worries, no worries. So um, as you continued in your research, uh, there was an increasing focus on indigenous peoples and uh, their connections to your matriarchal studies. How did this? How did this sort of enter your stream of consciousness, and how did this this um, increasing focus come about? Yeah, you see, I, you, you see, I started with this mythological studies, and I wanted to know more, as I just said before, about the political, um, social, and economical patterns, and I couldn't find this out in history of culture alone. But in history of culture, we have only remnants, we have archaeological finds, and we have mythology, but I cannot see how, how people did their political decision-making, how how did they, they go on with the social patterns, and, and so on. And so I felt, I, even if I started in the field of history of cultures, and this is my favorite field, I had to learn that it is not enough to stay there. I had to look at major uh, art societies of our time to see how people do this. History was not not informative about this. Of course, we have okay. only relics. So um, I tried to to work, make my way into anthropology, and to change the discipline a little bit. And there was philosophy of science was very helpful for me. But I'm not a, tra a trained anthropologist, but I can see how they argue and how they construct their theories. This is my background of a philosophy of science. Right. It to change, to change disciplines and to look what's going on there. So this was very helpful. And I started to read a lot of anthropological literature. Of course, I found the same biased opinions there as everywhere. 
but I could read between the lines and I could uh, evaluate the argumentation. And I found again a lot, but not under the label matriarchy. They call it the matrilineal societies as if, it, as if it's only about a kinship line and nothing else. Mm. But I looked also at the other patterns, not only kinship line, but there's the, how they manage their society, their social patterns, how they manage their economy and political. And I found a lot which was written down, but not, not understood, not understood in the inner cohesion, which all this had. And this, in this way, I could proceed with my learning and my studies and uh, could fill my theoretical ideas with more and more empirical stuff. Right. And after I had read, when I, uh, there I could find it. How do I, how, what, what's their economy and what, what, how do they manage their, all their societal, um, their pattern and so on. And after I had read enough and written a lot of down, I thought I must now make the, the experiment to the experiment. I must now make the crucial test and go to one of these major art societies. I knew, uh, I knew where they are and I knew their names and I knew which peoples uh, had this pattern. Right. And so by good luck again, I met uh, another woman who was a specialist in Chinese studies. And she invited me that we go together to the Mozo in Southwest China with the Hagia group. I formed a group of Hagia students. Everyone had her own task. And so we organized this research trip and went to the Mozo in Southwest China. Oh. I, want test, I want to test my theoretical findings and my, my understanding, which I took only from literature, literature. So it was really a very interesting part of my studies to be there. And That's of course, amazing. yeah. And of course, I was not an anthropologist who wanted to know every detail in their in their everyday life and what they are, how they live and how, what they are doing. But I wanted to test the basic ideas of my theories. And this was really um, for me wonderful to to see that I was right. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> Conversation and interviews and observations too. And the basic ideas which I had found out what a matriarchy is were wonderfully um, confirmed. Oh. Research. What in this way, I won, I had also won friends from such a society and some of them were later invited to our um, World Congresses. Right. I had to listen to these people themselves. This was my idea. And this was the first first opportunity that when I could do this. I was wondering what they thought of you because you were saying you had to listen to them. What was their reaction to you and the other uh, scholars coming to visit them? How did they receive you? What did they think of you coming to learn about them or from them? Shall I speak about my Mosul experience? Yes. yes, please. Yeah, please. That would be wonderful. They were in a special situation. For they are a minority in China, and they wanted to get the official political status of a minority, which they didn't have. 
So we were very welcome to them and they wanted that we write about them. I wrote a book about them in German and we made a film about them and, and so on and so on. And we were welcome because so um, more attention was drawn to them and they needed it to become this official political status as an official minority in China. I never would have gone to um, to an, an, um, people uh, who would not who would not have invited me for so they have enough troubles and enough problems they do not need us to to make their troubles even bigger i would not have done but this was a special case and we were supported from the official chinese all women's association we were supported and had uh, Anthropologists with us, specialists who helped us to, to, to open the doors and to ask. And I think what was important to them, we were an all women's group. This was important to them. And we not, didn't do research as asking them and observing them. We did it in a, we made our dialogues. We asked them about their society and we, we offered the Opportunities that they ask us about our society, and they did it. And they yeah. were astonished how we women have to live in a Western patriarchal uh, European society. They were very astonished about it. They wanted to know how we are living. Right. To have a dialogue and to to share what we could share, uh, open the doors, and we had always a feeling we were really welcome to them. That's and wonderful. When we interviewed young women or older, they were so open to us. I think we were in an age, uh, we were um, we were in the age of their mothers or even their grandmothers. So they looked at us like mothers and grandmothers, and so they were open-hearted and really told us a lot what they would never have told to male anthropologists. Fascinating. So yeah. it became a cultural exchange in many ways. Yes, it was. That's really. wonderful. Was really, yeah. And I I tried to put it in my book. I, I published direct, the interviews directly, not interpreting what they have said, the dialogues, our dialogues. But this book is, I'm sorry, it's in German. It's, a, it's not available in English. Darn it! <laughs> Hopefully, maybe someday someone will translate it. Yeah. Uh, so in 2003, you organized your first World Congress on Matriarchal Studies. How did that come about? That must have been an enormous undertaking. Yeah. See, by literature, I knew which who scholars were writing about this topic. Some really open using the term matriarchy, some few did it. And others were very close. And uh, I wanted to bring these scholars together because they, they, they did these studies in isolation, not knowing from each other. Right. And I wanted them to bring them together with the indigenous scholars. For example, in, in China, we were accompanied by a uh, Mozo scholar, professor in, in anthropology. He was so helpful. And we, I wanted to bring him here. And in Germany, and, and also by different connections, I knew about other indigenous scholars. And I want to bring the indigenous scholars who wrote about their own society and were not shy to label it matriarchy, 
which is not known by many of us that some of them label their society themselves, Meiji like the Milan Kaba, the Mozo, and so on, and also the Iroquois. Right. And with the scholars who are who did research about them, and they're also not so shy to to touch this topic matriarchy. So I I hope I hope to, that I could bring them together to create a uh, scientific community with indigenous and non-indigenous scholars. And this was was the first World Congress in Luxembourg. I had good luck because the Minister of Family and Women's Affairs of Luxembourg supported this Congress. Oh, wonderful. Official event. <laughs> so we came together. And of course, from this Congress, the second developed because these scholars had again, had also connections and indigenous scholars also knew about some important persons and so on. So it, it, it it continued. That's fantastic. And for me, it was really important because I, I became I uh, had connection to indigenous scholars, which I, uh, whom I didn't know before, and they were my very important informants about their societies. Yes. I wanted to listen and not only to write as a white person about indigenous societies. I wanted from every society to listen to a scholar who who uh, he or she had better knowledge than me about her society. And I was very lucky to, to find them and they were my, my best helpers. Otherwise it was not possible to write these books I had written. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this is, you know, pre-internet. So it's, it's yeah, yeah. It to, to make those connections that we now think, oh, well, you just Google it and, you know, look for people. It was, it was a whole it was much more difficult to find like-minded people across the globe than it is now. Now we sort of take it for granted that we're all connected internationally. But, but I knew it. I knew it from my literature, from anthropological literature. I read it in German, in English, and in French. Sometimes I helped to read it in Spanish, so I knew where they are, right? And what are the names of these peoples? And so. Then internet began. I started in 2000 with internet rather late. <laughs> the opportunity to find these connections then. Right. Google was not existing at that time. And right. to bring them together. This was, right. yeah. yeah. Some of the American friends also helped me a lot because uh, people of these societies are also living, some of them in, in the US. So Right. Yeah, that's wonderful. So um, I loved this essay, uh, and I guess it came out of this first World Congress. Um, oh my goodness! And it's the book societies of peace. Do you mean this book? Ah, yes. Okay, so it was translated into English. Yeah, it's in English. The book okay. societies of peace includes all the lectures which of of two World Congresses of all the indigenous scholars who's, who who presented there and the non-indigenous scholars who were occupied with this topic. This book includes the lectures from both World Congresses on matriarchal studies. Oh, that's fascinating. It's a basic book for this uh, new field of study. Yeah, yeah. And you can see the, the great variety of voices who know about this. Yeah, 
Vicky has been recommending that book to me for a long time. I didn't realize <laughs> I saw the German name and the English name, and I didn't realize it was the same thing. Okay, yeah. good to know. Good to know. The German, the German uh, yeah, yeah. But it's in English, Societies of Peace. Inama Press in Toronto published it, and you have the voices of both world congresses included. Oh, that's fascinating. All right, I'm I definitely... That's kind that we recommended it to you. Really yes, kind. yeah, absolutely. I've got to get a hold of it. So speaking of books um, of that I know of, you have three other books, four other books now that have been translated into English. The Your first one, The Goddess and Her Heroes, mm-hmm. um, which was uh, from 1995. The Dancing Goddess, which was translated in 1991, I believe. And... Um, then matriarchal society studies on indigenous cultures across the globe that came out in the, the uh, early two thousand tens. Go ahead. Uh, the matriarchal society studies on indigenous cultures across the globe. This is my my um, first major work, but it includes the matriarchal um, um, peoples who still exist today or still recently. Of course, the Iroquois society doesn't exist in that way, but it was researched. Uh, 200 years ago, the research began, even if it was not so wonderful, but it began. So right. when I mean of today, I mean uh, these societies were witnessed, were eyewitnessed, and were researched by anthrop- anthropologists directly. It's, it's not a history of culture. Got it. And the range goes through this time until today, the few which are still existing today having all these matriarchal patterns. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Fascinating. And you just had a new book translated into English, Matriarchal Societies of the Past and the Rise of Patriarchy. Mm-hmm. So how, um, what, uh, what is new in this new book and um, how is the reception going for uh, the publication? The reception has just started. This book came out in December last year. It's not so long. But you <laughs> see, I'm, I'm so deeply interested in history of cultures. I, and I wanted to know what was before this patriarchal epoch. Mm. I always say it when I was asked, oh, how it came to patriarchy, I always say it was not the same in every region of the world. It was different in the different continents, different. We have to research this in a different way. So I have to realize this. I have to show in the different cultural regions of the world what is the matriarchal um, culture before and to prove it by archaeological finds, not by my fancy. Huh? <laughs> archaeological finds, even if these finds are scattered and sometimes misinterpreted, I have collected them and I looked at them from the lens of my my studies of matriarchy. The studies of present, of still existing matriarchal societies gave me deep knowledge about the society. And now with this lens, I can, can look in the history of cultures. And then you see many more things which have been neglected. You see many things which have been completely misinterpreted. And um, yeah. And so from the background of a deep knowledge of how major art societies is built and how it functions, I could find a lot. Mm. 
And I put it together to show that we have really archaeological bases. Maria Gimbutas did, did a great work in this field already in all Europe, yes. but it brought me to West Asia and I will continue to broaden to the other continents to show that everywhere we have a major epoch of some thousands of years. And then I have to explain how came it to patriarchy in every, in every continent, in every land. And I started now with Europe, of course, based on Maria Gimbuta's work, mm -hmm. and uh, in West Asia. And I showed, with the, I know that many books have been written about the origin of patriarchy, but I think I have a new aspect. The aspect is that not, uh, not some special technology or some wicked man, Men invented patriarchy, invented it now. This has been a, a, a huge climate change which lasted over thousands of years, which uprooted and destroyed matriarch society so that by means of survival, they developed a different economy which was based on herding, especially in, in the Eurasian steppe. And bit by bit, without without having a bad intention, they developed patriarchal patterns, organizing their society more, more effectively as they meant. Only later, when they had the idea that this is a very good invention, then patriarchy began. At the beginning, it was a matter of survival, mm -hmm. and later it was a patriarchal consciousness and continued in this way. And in West Asia, we have a completely different way how patriarchy came about. Mm. Well, in this, this is especially Mesopotamia. In Mesopotamia, we have the first uh, the establishment of the first states and the first empires in the world. And here we have not a nomadic uh, situation, which also affected later Europe, how, what, what Maria Gimbutas has shown, but we have a, a sedentary agricultural area between the two rivers, Euphrates and Tigris. But by by also affected by the climate change that the rivers had lesser water, but the population grew and immigrants came in. They had to organize their society always stricter and stricter. Not a bad intention at the beginning. They only wanted to survive and to make their society effective. But later they had developed a hierarchy to, to manage this problem and, and they, the city-states started to fight against each other about land and water, and then patriarchy developed there until it was developed in this huge empire of the first rulers like Sargon of Akkad and then the Babylonian and Assyrians. It's a completely different development, and I found it interesting, for we can see that state, state building always is based on patriarchal power. Yeah. Fascinating. This is included in this book, and I want to continue my studies because Africa is such an interesting continent. Show how it happened there. Yes. And East Asia and India, and the, the both America, South and North America. Yes. We have, to, we have to look how it happened everywhere and what were the reasons and were the triggers and what was the outcome. So, yes. I still occupied with this task. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. Yes. And part of this is, is if we know how it came about, hopefully we can um, figure out how to dismantle it. Yes, yes. This is important. I think it's important to know that everywhere 
the um, first and basic culture had matriarchal patterns. And later it was overthrown by different factors and different difficulties. When we understand this, we can we can gain a completely new picture about, uh, about history and about society. And I think this has a lot of impact. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So obviously you are on the interwebs. How can our listeners find your books, your courses, your teachings? How can they gain access to the wealth of information out there? Yeah, yeah thank you, Don, asking for this. Yes, it's very easy. You look at the website of the Academy Hagia. It's www.hagia.de. -E. Wonderful. And there you can find, and I have my own website where you can find all my publications. I will also give it to you if you allow me. Absolutely. It's www.göttnerabendroth not good my long name now I spell my long name so I hope it's not so difficult too difficult for the listeners g-o-e-t-n-e-r dash a-b-e-n-d-r-o-t-h Fabulous. Well done. If you find the Hagia website, there is, a, there is a label publications and you go there, then you find my website with the publications. Wonderful. Wonderful. And there is so much information on the Hagia uh, site. There are uh, videos and there are reference, uh, you know, connections to your publications and all that sort of thing. So I really urge our listeners to uh, visit there and check it out. You will be, you will be, um, have hours and hours of amazing reading pleasure, reading and watching pleasure. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much, Dawn and Zine. Thank you so much. It was really so nice for me to to be asked by you and to answer and to have this talk. Thank you so Wonderful. much. Thank you so much Thank you. for Thank yeah, you. for joining us and all the way from Germany. It's been wonderful to chat with you. And I look forward to everything that's um that you're working on in the future. Oh, thank you, Don. I I try to do my best. <laughs> Sometimes I have the feeling I'm changing our view on, on history and society to, to, to a big extent. Oh, my goodness, yes. Rewriting history. Absolutely. I'm very happy to find so many wonderful colleagues, scholars, scholar colleagues who have done this part and that part and that part. I include it all in my theory bringing my own parts but so i try to to give the whole picture yes yeah and there's been a wonderful um confluence that's been happening yeah. lately uh, with true. yeah mm -hmm. with all these sort of aspects of matriarchal research and it's really just a wonderful time for this yeah. topic it's thriving and Hopefully our podcast is just a little part of that. So yeah, thank you. It truly is. Thank you. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank thank you. And thank you, Sean Marlon Newcomb. And thank you, Don Sambolden. And thank you to our listeners. This has been the 34 Circe Salon, the Make 
Matriarchy Great Again podcast. Uh, we will be back again soon. Take, Take care. care, everyone, and blessed be. Thank you.